Good morning, I'm Mark Carter. I'm going to read the words to this hymn that the Apostle Paul laid down in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thank you, Mark. Lord, we ask that you would continue to unfold this passage to us Um, It is truly about the glories of Jesus Christ, and uh, there is no question in my mind that we underestimate him. No matter how long we have walked with him, learned of him, served him, obeyed him, there is much more to be learned. So speak to us through scripture this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, 39 years ago to the day, on February 19th, 1984, I opened up my heart to Jesus, and so it's been 39 years um, to the day this morning, and yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a clap for Jesus, and a clap that God got a hold of a scoundrel, and uh, so my life changed forever on that day, and I've spent 39 years pursuing him and learning of him and growing in the grace and knowledge of him. And the interesting thing is, is that the longer that I have walked with Jesus, the greater he has become, the bigger he gets. It's, it's amazing to me. And so that's why I've been saying over and over again, listen, he's greater than you think he is currently. I guarantee it. He's only going to become greater to you than what he is right now. And so who, you know, you think about who identifies themselves as I am. Now, I realize we're in a day and time where everybody thinks they can choose their own pronouns and all of that. But but who who goes around saying, uh, uh, what's your name? I am. 
What man claims to be the Alpha and the Omega, who was and is to come, the Almighty? What man says, I simply am. I had no beginning. I will have no ending. I depend on nothing. Everything depends on me. I am defined by nothing. I define everything. Everything, is, its purpose is found in relationship to who I am. I created everything and give everything its purpose. What man says that? So either this man is who he claimed to be, or as C.S. Lewis wisely pointed out, many, many years ago, he is a lunatic and a liar beyond what the world has ever seen. According to Pew Research in a recent poll, there's currently approximately 900 million Protestants and 1.4 billion Catholics in the world. That makes 2.3 billion people of the seven plus billion on planet Earth who identify as Christians, and the majority uh, of those 2.3 billion believe that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. So, so if, if it was all a hoax, and this man who lived 2,000 years ago in Israel, if it was all a hoax, it's a pretty impressive hoax. Think of all the people who have suffered for his name, who have gone to the ends of the earth to spread his name, who have literally been martyred for his name. Impressive hoax indeed. So you have to arrive, if, if, if you're not being just absurd, you have to arrive at one of those two conclusions. Either he is, I am, the ever-existing God, the invisible God who became visible on planet Earth, or he's a raving mad lunatic. There's no in-between. You can't stake out some middle ground, oh, he was a great teacher, oh, his moral teachings are so powerful, and I try and follow those, you know what, oh, that is so absurd. Well, we've been taking our time and savoring these six verses that we believe were an early church hymn, Paul includes it in his letter to the Colossians because though, though Paul, you know, was firmly convinced and understood that Jesus is, I am, God, invisible God made visible, there were false teachers at Colossae who were persuading Christians to worship angels. We'll see that in chapter two. Um, to pursue visions and spiritual experiences, uh, to pursue justification by following dietary laws and ceremonial laws uh, from the Old Testament, and asceticism, which is essentially the denying of yourself, earthly pleasures, you know, being hard upon your body, that kind of thing. And so to put it bluntly, this church, they did not understand the greatness and the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So Paul purposed in his letter to show them the supremacy of Jesus over all things, over everything. And uh, so far, we'll just re review really quickly. 
uh, Paul said that he is the invisible, Jesus is the, uh, the invisible God made visible. That's verse 15, right? He is the invisible God made visible to us. God is spirit. God is invisible. You can't see God. But because Jesus took on human flesh, we could see God. If you've seen me, Jesus said, you have seen the Father. Secondly, Jesus, Paul says, is the preeminent human. He's the firstborn of all creation. Not that he's created, but he is the highest rank among. He holds the place of firstborn in the human family. That is the one who inherits all things, you see. He's the creator of all things, which obviously would mean he's not created if he's the creator of all things. By him, verse 16, all things were created in heaven and on earth and so on. Then it says at the end of verse 16, he's the goal. Jesus is the goal of everything. You find your purpose in Jesus. If you've been searching in life for what is my purpose? Why am I here? Why am I on this planet and, you know, going to work every day and doing what I do? Feels kind of pointless. Listen, Jesus, it might sound crazy to you right now, but Jesus is the purpose, the reason why you exist. And therefore, it stands to reason that if you, if you come to Christ and get to know Jesus, that there's going to be a sense of purpose and meaning in your life, like I discovered 39 years ago to the day. Well, last week, we camped on this one declaration about Jesus, that he is the antecedent to all things. He's before all things, Paul says in verse 17. Antecedent just means before, prior to. So Jesus is the antecedent to everything. He is before everything. Before there ever was a thing, Jesus existed. Before there was a universe, there was Jesus. Before there was matter, there was Jesus. Before there was space and time, there was Jesus. And we illustrated that in the Old Testament through the story of Moses and his encounter with God at the burning bush. You remember that? Bush was burning but not being consumed. Moses, I got to go check that out. What is going on there? And Moses went up to the bush and God spoke from the burning bush. Said, take off your sandals, Moses. You're on holy ground. And God began to call Moses to a task. You're going to set my people free from Pharaoh. And then Moses said, well, who do I, when I go, I need to know who sent me. Who do I say sent me? Now Moses knew he was talking to God. The text says so. I am the God of your forefathers, God said to Moses. God is a title. Moses wanted God's personal name. And God said, all right, Moses, I am that I am. So you go and tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. I am. I simply am. I am the source of all things. I'm the uncreated 
creator of everything that exists. And on numerous occasions, Jesus declared himself to be, I am. In the garden, when that rough crowd came to take him away, the cross would be following the next day. And, and Judas pointed out Jesus with a kiss. You know the story. And they said, are you the one? Are you? And Jesus said, I am. And when he did, all those people fell over backwards. The power of the declaration of the I am. They fell on their back. Jesus is, I am, the ever-existing one. However great you think he is, Jesus is greater than you think now. Well, new territory. Okay, so if you're keeping score, this would be point number six out of this hymn. So number six, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. That's verse 17, the second part, the end there. In him... All things hold together. All things hold together. Now, if you think about this, all things, you know, the universe, you know, right now we are on planet Earth that is spinning around at about a little over 1,000 miles an hour, and then we're revolving, we're, we're in orbit around the sun at about 67,000 miles an hour, and yet none of us are being flung off the Earth And so we are told that gravity keeps the earth in the appropriate proximity to the sun and that gravity also keeps our moon in its appropriate proximity and gravity indeed keeps all planets, stars, galaxies in their approximate or appropriate proximities to one another. And indeed, it's gravity, they tell us, that keeps us uh, earthbound. <laughs> it keeps us from flying off the earth. But what is gravity? I researched it this week, just that what are people saying? No one really knows what gravity is. They don't know. Now, there's, there's theories. There's been really, you know, brilliant theories that have been put out there of why everything stays in its place and all of that. Newton, of course, famously uh, brought forth, you know, a theory that was accepted all the way up until, oh, 100 years ago, Einstein came along with his theory of relativity, and he kind of took a new approach to it, to gravity. But nobody really knows what it is. You can't see it. You can't inspect it. with It's a force. We just know somehow everything in the universe is keeping its proper distance from everything else in the universe. We, we don't really know why atoms hold together. I mean, there's theories about it, nuclear glue, they call it, why, you know, positively charged uh, particles don't repel each other within the atom. We figured out in the last century that, that the atom, the fundamental building block of the 
of the universe, it, it, there's a lot of power contained in an atom. If you can split an atom, especially uranium atoms, you, you can create enormous amounts of energy. I mean, you can power cities or destroy them by splitting atoms apart. So the Bible simply says Jesus holds it all together. That he's holding it all together. And 2 Peter 3 predicts a time where he will let go and the universe will burn away in fervent heat when he does. Well, number seven, concerning Jesus, this man who lived in Israel 2,000 years ago, verse 18, he's the leader of the church. Notice, he is the head of the body, the church. So Jesus, you, I'm sure you remember this story found in Matthew 16. He was in northern Israel, fairly close to where he grew up. And he asked his disciples what, what people were saying about him. What, what, are, what do they think of me? What, what is their perception of who do they say that I am? And the disciples said, well, some think you're uh, John the Baptist, some think you're Elijah, Jeremiah, or another one of the prophets. And then, of course, Jesus put the question to them. Who do you say that I am? And Peter had his big moment, didn't he? This was Peter. He steps right up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus gave Peter one of the biggest attaboys, way to go, Pete. Flesh and blood, now you didn't come up with this on your own, Pete. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father, you just got a revelation from my father. He revealed to you the actual identity of who I am. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Not your church, my church. Jesus wasn't saying that Peter would be the foundation of the church, the first pope of the church. He wasn't saying that. Jesus was claiming to be the rock, the foundation of the church, and Peter's confession and embracing of Jesus' true identity is how the church is built and added to. That, that famous passage, I've quoted it a million times. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, curios, God in human flesh, one who has right and authority over your life and over all things. That's what it means. And you'll be saved. That is, in effect, what Peter did in Matthew 16. He confessed Christ as Lord. The most important question facing all seven plus billion humans on the earth right now, and you this morning, is who do you say Jesus is? You're, the meaning of your life and, and the, the eternity that you will live out depends on the answer to that question. 
Hell is plundered and the church is built one person at a time when a sinner repents and embraces the true identity of Jesus and confesses him as their Lord. And I love the church because Jesus is the foundation of her. He's the builder of the church and he is the head of the church. Okay, Jesus is the head of Lighthouse Church. Not the pastor, even though we say lead, you know, I'm the lead pastor. I am an under shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd. And this is the story of the ages. It's the bride being prepared for the son. Jesus is the head of the church. I love the church, which means, by the way, the head is in the one who rules over and, and so on. But also, it has the connotation of being the source of the church. Jesus is the source of the church, like the headwaters of a river. Everything flows from the headwaters. Everything flows from Jesus. So why do I say that? Well, I could point you to a bunch of different passages. But let me just give you one. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10 says, He, Jesus, who descended, is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he, Jesus, gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Jesus gave all the pastors, all the shepherds, all the teachers, all previously the prophets and apostles, Jesus gave them. Until we all come to the unity. Have we come there fully? No. That's a, that's a lifelong endeavor. It really is. But watch this. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Like the Colossians were tossed. Because there were teachers coming in saying, man, angels, it's all about angel worship. And man, angels are incredible and visions and, and so on. Now, God can give a person a vision. He can. It's, it's in the Bible. But when you, when you pursue that stuff over and above Jesus, you are going to end up in a heretical place in your life, I guarantee you. So we want to become solid in our understanding of Jesus. So rather, verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up every, in every way into him, into Jesus, who is the head in Christ, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this is why you're here this morning, church, is that we are members one of another. And we are members of the big C church, the universal church, the bride of Christ, but we are members of the local church and we grow up together 
into Jesus, into maturity, and Jesus supplies everything as we do. He's the head of the church. Well, number eight, Jesus is the basis of our resurrection. That's verse 18, the second part. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So there's that term, preeminence, in everything. That we would understand that Jesus is the preeminent one over all things. But what an interesting phrase captured my heart this week. He's the firstborn from the dead. So Jesus turned the tomb into a womb. Something that was, that, you know, a place of death became a place of life and birth. Colossians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says that as by a man came death, and talking about Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the first human, Adam, fell, sinned, disobeyed God in the garden, and sin brought death to all future humans. So we have death, we die. The stats are convincing. <laughs> Go ahead. One out of one, 10 out of 10, whatever, how you want to spell it. So just as Adam, as our representative, led us into death, into the grave, Jesus, as our representative, leads us out. And so Paul's point is simple. Christ's people, his followers, his believers in him will rise from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead. The tomb became a womb and gave birth to Christ's resurrection body. Now, Paul illustrates it from the Old Testament. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, in fact, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, fallen asleep, that's New Testament euphemism for a Christian, a believer in Jesus who dies. Fall asleep, Greek word, cemeterion. You get a word cemetery, but the, the heart, it means hotel basically. So believers who die in Christ, they check into a hotel, or their body does. Don't have time to unpack all that with you. But it's like we're checking into a hotel for a little bit until resurrection day, until resurrection body is ready. So in fact, he has been raised. That's a fact. Thus, in fact, we will rise from the dead too. You will rise from the dead you are going to have a resurrected physical body that will never die. That's the implication. So Christ is the first fruits of that. What does that mean, first fruits? Well, that's, that takes us back to the Old Testament again. It's used a couple different ways. The feast of first fruits was when the 
the, uh, the high priest on the day after the Sabbath that followed the Passover, <laughs> that's when the day of first fruits was, once a year, uh, the Sabbath after Passover, so the day after the Sabbath after Passover, the priest would be in the temple and would offer to God one sheaf of grain and wave it before him in a ceremony. And that sample sheaf of grain represented the whole harvest. And if God accepted that first fruit offering by the high priest, then the Jews were assured that God's blessing would be on the whole harvest. So with Jesus being the first to rise from the dead, now he wasn't the first one to come back from death. Jesus raised a few people, right, from death. But they weren't resurrected in the sense that they would never die again. They would have to die. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, rose to everlasting life in an immortal, resurrected, glorified body, just like you will be. So, by God accepting the first fruits, we are guaranteed. By God raising Jesus from the dead, he is our first fruits accepted by God, ensuring our resurrection. That's why you can have absolute confidence that you are gonna live forever in a glorified, immortal body in a life more joyful than you could ever imagine because of Christ. Romans 5, 6, 5 says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, and by the way, that's what happens when, when you give your life to Christ. That's what happened to me 39 years ago today. I gave my life to Christ. There was a death that happened. I became a new creation. The old was gone. The new was here. And so if, you, if you're united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Certainly. Not all it might happen. Good shot at it. No. It's certain. It's a done deal. No argument. No debate. Number nine. Quickly on the last two. Number nine. Jesus is 100% God. Look at verse 19. This is so awesome. In him, it's in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God. The fullness, pleroma in Greek, which means it's, it's all. It's all of, all of God. Jesus wasn't part of God. He, you're like, hey, one-third of God was with us on earth for 33 years. God. Every bit of God is in Christ. Always, by the way. Didn't leave Jesus at some point of some heretics have taught and then come back in at other points. No. Always all the fullness of God was in Christ. The moment he was conceived, all the fullness of God 
It's in that embryo. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Last one. Jesus, number 10, Jesus is the reconciler of humanity. He is the reconciler. That's verse 19 and 20. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 20, and through him, through the I am, through the invisible God made visible to us, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this God who existed before there ever was matter, existed before there ever was the universe and planets and stars and this planet and so on, before ever there was a you, this God has made peace with all things. God has built a bridge to us. It's called the cross. I read a short story this past week that, that spoke to me. And the story goes something like this. There are two brothers who shared a property that their father bequeathed to them upon his death. And uh, it was a farm, a lot of acreage, and they each built houses on this property adjacent to one another. And, uh, and everything was great and fine until they had a falling out. And uh, days turned into weeks, which turned into months, which turned into years, in which the brothers never spoke to each other. And one day a man showed up at the younger brother's house looking for work and seeing if there was any projects or things that he could do to make some money. And uh, the brother interviewed him a little bit and said, you know what I do, I have a project for you. Uh, my older brother, you know, some time ago, he bulldozed the levee and diverted water to, to have this creek that now runs between our two houses. And uh, I tell you what I want, want you to do is I want you to build a fence on, on my side of that creek. I don't want to see my brother or his home. I, I want you to build a fence for me. And all the materials you need are over there by the barn. And uh, I've got to go away for a couple days to visit my, my wife's mom, and I'll be back. But that's what I want you to do is build a fence. And so the guy goes, okay. And a few days pass, and the younger brother comes back home. And he goes out the back door of his house. And he sees not a fence, but a bridge that's been built over the creek. And he's going, what in the world did this guy do? And he goes out the back door and he's walking towards the bridge. And just then, his older brother is coming across the bridge with a softened look on his face and on his countenance. And he says, brother, I am so sorry. I'm so thankful that you built this bridge. 
and I have been so stubborn and so hard and I can't believe I've let this much time go by and, and not having come to you and reconciling with you. Thank you. And the younger brother realizing the gift that had been given to him by this builder embraces his older brother and they were reconciled. Listen. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So what did God do? Well, well unlike our story, God, the one from whom we are estranged, God himself builds the bridge. But here's the kicker. God himself is the bridge. God himself literally is the bridge for us back to God. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God in Christ reconciling the world, building the bridge for lost sinners, building the bridge for people who have sinned and rebelled against their creator by becoming the bridge which required blood sacrifice. Now you might be one of those good people, <laughs> you know, a moralist. You go, man, I'm, I'm, I'm all about virtue and I want to live the best life I can and I applaud things that are good and I, you know, I uh, shame things that are shameful and, and so on. I'm a moralist. Listen, imagine for a, for a moment, a little thought experiment, for one day of your life, everything you did and everything you thought was broadcast on television and on social media. Every thought that went through your mind, every hateful thing, every perverse thing, every, everything that went through your mind was broadcast on television and around the world on every social media medium. Um, what would happen when you found out that was happening? Well, I won't speak for y'all, but I would die in shame. And I think we all would. What's it going to be like to appear before God who has seen everything we've ever done on every day of our life and seen every thought we've ever thought? Jesus even amplifying that, that thought. Boy, if you've lusted after another, you've committed adultery in your heart. I see that. What if that's all there on judgment day? What's it going to be like to appear before God? What's going to be like to stand before the one who's seen all of our actions and all of our thoughts every day 
over the course of our whole life beginning to end. Can, how can we have hope for that day? Because that, that day's coming. Judgment day is not some myth. That's, that's a real day that is in our future. How can we, as the Bible says, love and long for the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ when there is so much we have done and thought about that is vile and sinful and perverse and all the rest? How can we possibly look forward to that day? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism on day 19, it says this, quote, how does Christ, Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Well, first, let's ask the question, does it comfort you? But let's answer it. The Catechism says, quote, in all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. That's how I can look forward to that day with hope, with joy, with longing. The judge offered himself in our place. God himself paid the price. That's why we look forward to standing before Jesus. Jesus himself is the judge. And he offered himself in our place. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Have you come to Jesus like I did 39 years ago. Have you come to him? Have you put your faith in him? Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare our hearts for the table where we're confronted again with dramatic reenactment of what happened 2,000 years ago, where the I am, the invisible God made visible, the preeminent one, the creator of all things, was crucified to a cross between two thieves. One who mocked and scorned. The other who came around and pled for mercy. Lord, in a sense, all of us are one of those two thieves. We are all guilty like both of those thieves. Some of us have come to you for mercy and salvation, but others have not. And so they mock you, or well, maybe not openly with their words, but they, they mock the reality of who you are and what you've done. Maybe just relegating it to some 
religious fable or whatever. But Lord, you, you are. <laughs> you simply are. And you're here right now. And you've been with me every moment of every day for 39 years. every moment of every day since the day we said yes and gave our lives over to you. So Lord, we pray together for those who have not as of yet placed their faith and trust in you. Today would be their day. If you are ready to trust in Jesus Christ, if you want to do that today, and you're ready to turn from your sin and turn to him, I want you to raise your hand right now. God bless you right down here. By raising your hand, you're simply signifying that, yes, I want Jesus Christ to save me. I am a sinner. And I recognize that my sin has separated me from God. And I want to be reconciled to God, and I'm ready to trust in Jesus. I'm ready to step onto the bridge. If that's you, raise your hand. God bless you guys who've raised your hand. Anybody else? And I'm going to lead you in a prayer in just one moment here. God bless you back here. Anybody else? God bless you over here. All right. Lord, thank you for all these who have responded today, raising their hand, acknowledging they want Christ to be their Savior and their Lord. So God, would you do the miracle of salvation right now in them? So for all of you who raised your hand, I want you to pray this prayer after me and say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Go ahead and say it. I believe in you. That you died on the cross for me. Please come into my heart and wash away my sin. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. I give you my life. In your name I pray, amen, amen. That's right. Welcome, welcome for those who have, um, and you can make your way for the rest of you. If you've placed your, your faith and trust in Jesus, go ahead and make your way to the communion tables around and, and grab the elements and, and return and we'll partake as a, as a group.
this is a meal that, that we were sharing that has been shared for thousands of years and it started in that upper room with Jesus and his 12 disciples as he explained to them his mission would end on a cross but that, that this meal would be shared with believers as a remembrance of his sacrifice, but also as, as a, not only as a memorial, but as a looking forward um, to the day that he would return. And he told his disciples, and it's recorded, that, that he wouldn't partake of this meal until, until he came again and, and got his church for us. And so this meal is, is for us to remember, but also to look forward um, as we as we pray for and pray for the hastening of that day to come. Um, for believers, that's a, that's a good thing. For those who don't believe, that may not be such a great thing to, to look forward to, but we do. And so as we have the few last gather there elements, we take our, our cue from the Lord as he, as he took and broke the bread and he and he blessed it. And so we'll do the same. We'll, we'll take the bread and, and we'll, we'll praise him for his sacrifice for us. So Jesus, we do, we praise you for your sacrifice that's represented here in, in, this, in this piece of bread that, that represents your body that was given for us, Lord. And, and so we, we praise you for that. We look forward uh, to the day when we can have this meal with you. Until then, we have it together corporately to, to signify our um, the, our communion with you, Lord, is 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 what we're doing, and so 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 we praise you, Jesus, and we and we bless this bread as we partake. It's in your name, Amen. So he did the same thing with with the cup, as he as he blessed it. He said, "This is the cup of." Um, the blood is, is the, this, the new covenant that, that we're partaking in here, this memory of, of Jesus' sacrifice for us as his blood covers our sin. And so, Jesus, we thank you that in that moment in history when you hung on that cross, that our sin was covered in your blood. And, and so for those who believe, we're washed white as snow and we we get your righteousness and, and we acknowledge that you took our sin on that cross and so we we praise you and it's in your name that we partake amen